Hi everyone, Tracy here. You're listening to part two of our Beauty and the Beast two-part series with Kaylee Bray. This episode starts in the middle of our conversation about the various writers of Beauty and the Beast. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest starting there before joining us on this episode. With that said, please enjoy the show. I pulled a lot from this book called From the Beast to the Blonde, and she has this very funny quote. When men get a hold of the tale, they often in- introduce a special pleading on behalf of themselves. Oh, oh, that is such a good way to put it. Or it's like, but I'm, I'm good, and I, I promise if you just get to know me. Yes. And there's a lot of elements to the film that when looked it's just it's like it's an incredibly male gaze film um despite like it's like beauty and delicacy mm-hmm. marina warner who's our uh, author of that book goes on to say like look like cocteau was really focused on the woman as a muse because of like his like surrealism style and so he was leaning really heavily on like the like baudelaire's concept of the impassive feminine mm-hmm. the like marble statue that you put on a pedestal that is your window to genius and so she's just this like beautiful vehicle through which men can be creative and attain greatness yeah and they just sit over there and be pretty and inspire men and that's it mm-hmm. so again like there's no agency there's no personality there's no humanity to these women and in his be- in the in his film uh, la belle et la bête um the beast doesn't have to change at all. It's all on her. She has to see, like, see beyond mm. the surface. He is all already and always has been a really good, decent person. Um, he has no flaws except for this outward exterior, like, just ugliness. And so she has to, like, unpack her own, like, preconceived notions mm-hmm. and prejudices and all these other things. So it's all on her to improve and to, like meet him at his level and humble herself yeah and so this this element in that film and in a lot of stories that either male like authors or filmmakers or even just like editors when they're like abridging or adapting or translating these stories get a hold of where it's like well and they're speaking to other men in it where it's like hey it like soothes the wounds of rejection like it's she's like she's short-sighted she's shallow she's like not really like is nothing to do with you she, like if she really like took the time uh-huh and so for a fi- like for a story that was created by women to communicate with other women when men take it to communicate with other men in that way it's so obvious and wild and the story is just like that's not beauty of the beast i don't know what you- and it's so unfortunate because the idea of exploring the beast's emotions around his circumstance, around becoming a beast, around learning and growing and wanting to see this other person and be the best version of themselves for them and wondering what that could be because of the curse. Like, there is so much to explore there that is so interesting and complex and emotional. I Yeah. And I still like the journey that that the, you know, Belle or Beauty – I like the journey she goes on. I do think that that's a good story to have of someone – initially not wanting to be around another person and being maybe repulsed or 
angry with them and then learning to see who they really are and loving them for who they are. Good journey for that character, too. But I think both characters need the journey. And I think that uh, Terry Windling also is a little bit unfair to the film in this aspect because I think that there is some change that both Belle and Beast need to undergo. And um, the film draws from that original story, too, and the like, oh, I'm like dim-witted and I'm mm-hmm. rough around the edges and like I'm not I'm not a polite, easy to get along with person, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm aggressive and a little like unpredictable and you know i have a temper and what mm-hmm. does that mean and of course a woman who is faced with a a man who it has this like unpredictable temper that's incredibly dangerous and then oh also the way that i met you is you uh threatened to kill my father unless right. he uh, uh unless he like i take his place like that's you're a bad person for doing that. You should feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about how you look. That's that's that is fucked up behavior. <laughs> yeah, that's objectively bad. Yeah, that's a crime, and you should not do that. <laughs> and I don't understand. Like, there's only so much library, right? Right. And then, like, you know, when you have the amount of time, and uh, you get to also like, consider the extenuating circumstances of being cursed and what that means and and who's in in like in like control of their own actions and i know in the original story both original stories there's something about in addition to being cursed with like a bestial form Mm -hmm. cursed with like bestial uh like habits and mannerisms so his like Mm dim-wittedness was like they like cut away parts of his awareness. Yeah. So he also can't like just be like a civilized guy who looks like a beast who's at who can ask for help. Right. He's like been cursed to a bot like follow these baser instincts, quote unquote, until someone reminds him or exposes him to different kinds of ways to behave. Because he didn't know them before. It it does Savor strongly of uh, I'll, I can be the one to fix him energy and uh, the the epidemic we're seeing people talking about a lot more nowadays in heterosexual relationships of, you know, the women being in marriages where they're just parenting men. And that's – I just feel like it's the wrong takeaway from especially stories like this because like, hey – and then we go back to context, right? We go back to like that – femme-centered, environment-centered, context-focused style of communication. There was a time where women were taught, I can fix him, because there was no alternative. Mm -hmm. And it was consistently criticized by the women who were writing these stories, and then the men who got a hold of those stories took that part out. Like, that's not important. They... They read something that maybe even made them uncomfy. Like, it wasn't even, like, direct, but they, like, could feel mm-hmm. that there was, like, something being, like, Im- like implied. And so it would be a little bit changed. And that's where you get the, like, civilizing, domesticating, purifying presence of the virgin wife yeah. in the animal as bridegroom. Like, that doesn't come from other women in the same way. Like, it'll come from other women in a satirical or uh, critical way. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not celebrated by women in the way that it's celebrated by the male authors and editors. Oh, yeah, for for sure. And that's how you always you could always tell. Which is wild to me. And going more into that like animal as bridegroom and and talking a little bit more about Madame Dolnoy, um who was Perot's like contemporary. Mm-hmm. They probably like knew each other. Um but she was a little bit more separate from the court, so she was also allowed to be a little bit spicier. Ooh, yeah. Um, and more critical un- until she uh, wasn't. So in the time of the fairy tales being created, like the genre of fairy tale being created, there was uh, a collection of books where mo- there was a collection of tales that was bound and like distributed. And it was primarily women who were the authors. And, like, a bunch of them ended up getting eggs. <laughs> oh, no. And at least two have, like, alleged relationships with spies or, like, espionage somehow. And, like, I don't understand the crossover, but I find it so fascinating. I want to do more research about it because, yeah. I, like, you know, if I had a nickel. <laughs> what a weird crossover. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I guess I get it, but it's weird that it happened at least twice, but possibly more than twice. And I think it, I think her uh, it's uh, Madame Dolnoy has ties to espionage, potentially alleged ties. We don't know. Um, again, like her her life kind of reads like a like a Pulp Fiction right, novel, right, right, right. And I think the other one's name was like Madame La Force. De La Force, I think, was another one who potentially had. Uh, ties to... I mean, maybe there's something about being a, a writer and, you know, someone vocalist about sharing women's stories that then makes you the kind of bold that also engages in espionage? It might be. It also... Maybe it was also Beaumont. I don't remember. No, no it couldn't have been Beaumont. It might have been maybe De Villeneuve. I'll have to... I, that one, I can't exactly remember which one, but there were at least two, which I find wild. Um... Just someone who like had a relationship with a spy. Yeah. Uh, so Madame Dolnoy um, is considered to be one like the mother of fairy tales, like that's Mother Goose, y'all. But also, um, mm. she was one of the first people to draw inspiration from the Cupid Psyche story, mm-hmm. and then her stories. She has a she has one that's the most beauty and the beast she wrote a ton of animal as bridegroom tales um but she has one that's the most the closest to beauty and the beast called the ram okay um and then she has another one that's a more direct retelling of the cupid and psyche story and the ram has a a really unhappy messy ending and then the green serpent which is her retelling of the cupid psyche story is a little bit long and convoluted and like it convoluted in the way like you can see the style you know that Villeneuve read The Green Serpent before she wrote mm. Beauty and the Beast. Because the, all of those tropes exist there in a really specific way. Where, like, she's, like, call, she's calling back to tales that she would have been told and shared on her own in the salons. And that's where I go back to that, like, referential form of communication where we're constantly referring to something that's, like, common knowledge in, like, a, mm-hmm. on a, in a community, in a fandom, right? Yeah. That to anyone outside of that, like, community is completely incomprehensible. Yeah. 
oh, now I really wish I could go back to those salons and and understand what was just the the average story of the day. What was being told? What were the tropes? What were what were the conversations? What were the inside jokes? What were the little nuances that you know we just don't have anymore? We do. It's the fairy tales. Those exist in the fairy tales. You can see them. Because also, if they're if you can read the two like multiple contemporaries, yeah. they're talking to each other. Oh, that's so cool! In these collections of books, like you can see someone being like, "Okay, I'm going to pull that." And like the men did this too, like a lot of playwrights and like you know Oscar mm-hmm. Wilde and like and people like that. They would do something kind of similar, but it was less collaborative in a community mm-hmm. thing, and it was then like it's more competitive, right? In that sphere, that was what was encouraged, as opposed to the like. The collaborative way that women were taught to communicate, and then there was like com- like competitions and rivalries and stuff too. Obviously, like that's human nature, and also mm-hmm. women being a woman in the patriarchy is the whole thing. But you you get it's there, it's there, it's it's written down. You can see it. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. I love it. These yeah, these little secret clubs are some of my fav like my favorites. So when Marie Catherine Dolnoy as a like writer she had such a weird life she's so important to the beauty and the beast story specifically because i don't think that the animal as bridegroom would have caught on in the same way with the same complexity if she hadn't been so obsessed with working out her own shit in mm-hmm. in that like storytelling way so, um, for those of you who haven't listened to the Cupid Psyche episode of Lily Fable, <laughs> uh, it's the uh, a woman named Psyche is considered as beautiful as Aphrodite, and uh, Aphrodite is mad about that. And yeah, she doesn't like it. Doesn't like it. Big surprise. So uh, she orders her death, and is it like is Cupid? Is she? Does she tell Cupid to do it? first i can't remember exactly what it is somehow there's and there's lots of versions of this where like so many versions and then this is another one that people love to take uh into today but yeah he he sees her and can't bear to see her beauty lost in the world but she can't ever look upon him and then she does Mm -hmm. and then loses him he leaves her and she's heartbroken and has to do a bunch of chores for aphrodite to win him back but in a lot of uh a lot of versions the first, like, the way that she gets, like, kidnapped from her family, because instead of being killed, she just, he abducts her mm-hmm. and hides her from his mom. But there, like, she is told or she sees a, like, green dragon. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, this monstrous dragon creature. So she, so then when Dolnoy wrote The Green Serpent, it's a direct call to the Cupid and Psyche story. And that's one of her only animals, Bridegroom, with a happy ending. Oh. Oh, that makes sense if it's pulling from an original version that has the happy ending. You talked about this before of the, like, Belle is beautiful, so it makes it easier. Mm -hmm. She starts off the tale with, my heroine was cursed by a fairy with perfect ugliness. What does that mean? So, my, it means, like, like, she is so... Hideous to look, like, so distasteful to, like, for society that she has to, like, hide, like, she's kicked out of society and forced to live in the woods. Like, you know, swamp hag style. Mm-hmm. Which, honestly, we love for her. We love a hag. But to take Psyche 
who's supposed to rival Aphrodite in beauty. She's like, Mm-mm. no, no, no. Yeah. I'm going to take this, but this is this is how you you know it's my story, and it's not a Greek myth, presumably. At least as far as we know, the first like written record of the story was written down by a man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Greek myth. Most of them were. So she has this ugly heroine who meets a green serpent in the woods, runs away, and then a fairy says, wait, don't, like, appearances can be deceiving. And she's like, all right. <laughs> and is squired off to some mystical land where she's, like, waited on hand and foot and lives, like, this beautifully, like, luxurious lifestyle and is, like, wi- like seduced by, like, the whispers of this mm-hmm. person who has taken her there. And it's – this first story is salacious. Ooh. Um, and it includes, like, retellings of the Cupid psyche myth, like, in it. Like, it's mm. very referential. And, yeah. like, part of it is, like, being seduced by telling stories. Like, being told stories and yeah. and, and that kind of thing, which is, is great. So, uh, eventually she agrees to marry mm-hmm. this person under the same conditions of, you can't look at me. Eventually she does and sees this, like, horrific beast. And then gets kidnapped again by i think it's the same fairy that cursed her with mm. ugliness and she has to do all of these chores and uh dolnoy makes the like challenges that the trials that uh, her heroine has to do so much worse than the ones that psyche had to do she like makes this woman go through it oh my god and then after she finishes also still ends up in isolation for like three more years Oh my god, this one's harsh. And then, after three years, is for what for some reason reunited with that serpent who is transformed into a handsome prince. Does she ever get transformed into like a beautiful princess? She does, but only yeah. after he agrees to take her as she is. Oh, where did this version go? I like this version. It's so interesting because... I think they were ended up – I think the, the story is that they were cursed by the same fairy. There are things – like, it's, like ver- – there's so many different versions and translations. Mm-hmm. So it's, some things kind of get lost in the shuffle of, like, mm-hmm. the fairy. And it's like, okay, which – how many fairies are there? It's hard to tell sometimes. There's always at least a good one and a bad one. Yeah. So his curse had been broken and he was a prince again. And then she reveals himself to – reveals herself to him and, like, the physical toll that these trials had for her – where, like, she had to, like, she was wearing, like, these tiny, like, iron shoes and all sorts of other things and living in a forest that was, like, populated by uh, other people who'd been cursed uh, by being turned into animals also and punished mm. by fairies to be turned into animals also. It's very Cersei. And then he essentially just, like, reproposes and her curse is broken, too, and her beauty is restored. I gotta say, it's basically reverse Shrek. Or Shrek is reverse this, which is just like I know that objectively it is, but it's just so funny hearing like it is. Well, and Shrek is a Beauty and the Beast. It's so, Shrek is Beauty and the Beast. It's Beauty and the Beast, but like flipped, I guess. Yeah, and so is um Penelope. The uh, oh, I loved that movie. Yeah, that's just a gender reversed Beauty and the Beast retelling. Yeah. So and that that one's so important to that it's the only way that i think that madame dolnoy would be comfortable writing a story with a happy ending because of how important it was for the eventual happy quote-unquote couple to be on equal footing when they 
were act like married. Mm-hmm. Like she had had a whole life and 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 trauma and challenge and and grown up and made decisions, and then she was accepted based off of what she had done and who she was instead of fate or true love or right. anything else. <laughs> Whereas the Ram, which is her actual like Beauty and the Beast, much more story, it's also a little bit King Lear. Oh, uh, like a girl gets kicked out, like or her dad tries to kill her, so she's like, "Bye." Yeah, uh, runs into the woods, meets this ram who's like, "I'm a prince who was cursed by a fairy. You want to come live in my palace with all of my friends?" And she's like, "I guess." And he, uh, falls in love with her, I guess, and then she finds out her s- other sisters who her fa- who like her father like prefers now are getting married, so she goes back. For the weddings mm-hmm. and then her father discovers her and is penitent and then reunites with her and offers to like raise her up and allow her to inherit the title and rule as queen which like yeah wow in sun king's court in sun king's court you did what you said what louis the 14th could read what <laughs> and then the ram dies of a broken heart because she became queen and leaves him and then she's really sad, and she cries over his body. It feels like she'll die too, but that like he's dead, and she's queen. yeah. It, okay, that's that's her Beauty and the Beast story. <laughs> and yet, the Green Serpent is much more Beauty and the Beast. It's what we think of as Beauty and the Beast yeah. for sure. And she also oh, um, I wrote this down because I thought it was hilarious. She ends the Ram with um, she's one of she's you know she was in the style of those rhyming morality mm, yeah. uh, passages. How different from our modern swains. Even his death may well surprise the lovers of the present day. Only a silly sheep now dies because his ewe has gone astray. <gasps> oh my god. I love her. <laughs> I love her so much. She's just, she's the foundation, one of the foundations that, like, I think that Sarah J. Moss mm-hmm. has, right? Like, you can draw a straight line. Oh, with sharpie it's so clear to our to our beauty and the beast retellings today where we are like mm-hmm. kind of reclaiming the idea of this animal as bridegroom story is outside of a disney-fied yeah. version of it because was obsessed with this kind of story because she was married at like 15 or 16 to uh, a man who was like 30 years probably her senior um potentially kidnapped to have that marriage like from the the convent where she was receiving an education because oh my God. he some slightly more important man owed him money and so was she just plucked out of a convent like oh she's pretty we'll just they think so but they're oh not that's God. one of those those things where like we're not sure exactly we know mm-hmm. she got married but but we're not sure how true this part of the circumstance is but they think that is like possibly what happened yeah but then three years later she and her mom allegedly Mm -hmm. uh conspired with their lovers to accuse the baron so dolnoy's husband of high treason (gasps) they said he had publicly cursed the taxes being levied by the sun king in public which like (gasps) yeah that's how that's how you lose your head right yeah and he was imprisoned in the Bastille for three years, which is on record. Um, there's a like there are like the Bastille archives support this. 
And then he convinced them that it was a lie somehow. Mm. And brought retaliatory charges against his wife and his mother-in-law. Oh, my God. And their lovers. And their lovers were caught and tortured and confessed <gasps> and, like, blamed Dolnoy and her mother. Oh, my God. And that's, again, on record. Like, this is why I was like, th- th- she had a wild life. And right. The, like, the parts that we know for sure is unbelievable. And so, his, like, her mom was, like, ran. She fled to England. And that's where things get a little bit sketchy for uh, Madame Dolnoy because they're like, well, accounts say that when, like, officers came to wherever she was for, like, an early morning summons, she jumped out a window <laughs> and ran to the church and, like, hid under a pew. And then somehow made it to Europe, like, they think maybe Holland, maybe somewhere, but they're not sure because a lot of people think that she, for quite some time with her mother, were spying for France in, like, Holland and other places around Europe. Right, right. But they don't know. The only reason that they think that it's probably true is because she was allowed back to France in, like, 1685, and there's only a couple of reasons. Hmm. And they didn't really say why. So, like, well, maybe they like she made some kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, but, like, in 1685, she started receiving visitors and having one of, like, the leading salons of society. Wow. Which is where she started telling all these stories and writing all these books and, like, building this community of women. And that's where, like, you start to see the fairy tales talk to each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, like, very subversive. And there's... Uh, there are some scholars that think that she was using fairy tales to help women out of, like, situations. Because there, oh, there's definitely an account where allegedly – again, allegedly because she was never caught because she would have been absolutely executed for this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a woman named Angelique Tiquet who convinced a servant of hers to try to kill her abusive husband. Oh, okay. Okay, so this woman failed. Tried to get oh, tried to get a servant to kill her husband and the servant failed. But most people think that um, Dolnoy was helping, like, help set it all up for her. Oh, my God. And some of the exchanges were happening in, like... That's so cool. ...tales and in these salons. That it was, like, it was never explicitly planned. It was all talked around and everybody knew what everyone was talking about. The problem, of course, was, like, the servant failed and was caught and hanged and TK was beheaded. But it was this, like... There was this whisper network there then also of, like, these women being like, I'm not saying these are the kinds of flowers that you should grow in your garden, but, you know? Oh, yeah. And this is such a – this part is such a tangent, but the other, like, fun, famous mother of fairy tales uh, who was one of Delnoy's contemporaries, Countess Marat, was also in big trouble with the court all the time. Um, And you'll just love her because she's (laughs) – I'm just telling her I'm just telling you about her because you'll love her. She was just one of those people who um really didn't pull punches and was a little bit more associated with the court than Dolnoy was. So when she wrote this like very salacious, spicy tale about that was look, the character was like almost exactly the king's mistress who oh had this God. like reputation of like real piousness and stuff. They were like, Hi, you're being charged with depravity and you gotta go. And she resisted for a while. She's like, I'm not going to leave. You can't make me. And then her family had her declared mentally unfit. And she was sent off to the country somewhere to be, like, institutionalized. Yeah, yeah. But she was also apparently still living her best life. Like, she was charged with, and and again, they don't really know, 
um, how much of this was true, but it was like blasphemy and like lesbianism. We're like, I hope so. Good for her. Yeah. But the whole time she was like exiled, she would wear a like red riding hood to church. Big no no. <sighs> and like constantly yell about living for pleasure. And then r- constantly wrote tales that were really like real, like acidic, bitter social commentary. Um, I love her. It was she's amazing. Um, these women are amazing, and that's that's why I I like to think about them, and I wanted to bring them up because, again, you can draw a line from them to the kinds of art that we're getting now because they set up this whole structure for women to write these fantasies for themselves, for each other, and, like, develop this very, very unique flavor of escapism and fantasy that is – that communicates so well with other works and other women. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not – it was such a groundbreaking, revolutionary style because – it didn't require the approval or even the consumption mm-hmm. of men, which in society, like in a society at that time, if it wasn't for men, then it wasn't for anyone. It would be right. So when these women are like, no, 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 this is for us, and we're gonna, we're going to manipulate the circumstances that exist around like, the limitations that we have. This like very like, uh. Warner called it a privileged powerlessness, which I think mm. is really, like, an interesting way to think about it. Because, like, yeah. you have everything you want. You just can't want anything. Yeah. Wow. That's a really good term for it. Privileged powerlessness. Were, the like, the working class and the peasant class having harder lives? I mean, yeah. 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 They they also had a whole revolution about that. But, like, they, a few heads started rolling. Because they had at least the privilege to, like, write and be educated, you can see the elements of the patriarchy that they were struggling with that we still struggle with. And making a lot of the same choices to challenge those things in the ways that they make art. And I don't know, there's something about the evolution of what that, like, escapist fantasy is for women and how it's changed. Because I feel like there are a lot more happy – like, we want happy endings again. And maybe that's just me. That's I mean, I know I do. It's something that Rowan and I talk about all the time because I always want a happy ending. I like to really live in the stories. And for me, I don't mind – I actually, I love angst in stories. I love when it gets, like, really tough and there's low moments. But I want it to end on a happy note because that's what I want to end kind of living in and, and having hope because – I think all day, every day, all the time about sad things and anxiety. And so when yeah. I escape, I want it to be an escape into something that makes me feel better. And I I agree. And I think that a lot of our peers and uh, a lot of like Gen Z also, the people who are now starting to create and consume media and these kinds of stories, it feels like – and again, maybe I'm in an echo chamber. It feels like that is a, a, the kind of trending – like desire for that kind of market but it's more in line with a dull noise story right the green serpent mm-hmm. of no this is a woman who is complex and flawed and she makes mistakes and she learns things and thing and she loses and she and and these things change her mm-hmm. 
and there is tragedy and then there is what happens after tragedy and then there is hope and then there is a a, a happy ending that like feels earned as opposed to a love at first sight happily ever after a lot of authors and filmmakers especially the femme ones are like mm, no i want what's the middle mhm let's talk about the middle let's let's explore that a little bit who am i relating to here i want to make interesting art about that mhm and it's it doesn't even it like it's not even a Demo, a de Beaumont thing it's a villeneuve thing it's a dolnoy thing it's a murat thing and it's definitely not a Perot or a no 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 that that middle part is is not as exciting which i think it is that's what i i talked about i love that character dynamic and that growth and how you they both go on different journeys but they couldn't go on that journey without each other to me that is what makes a really interesting love story I agree. And it's it, it is that like, okay, I I enjoy the the two flawed people growing together who like again, it's like I don't know how I feel all the time about like two specific people only needing each other and what that oh, is yeah. and you know, I got to be in a mood for that. Uh but having two characters like grow at the same time and grow apart and come back together and and feel organic and real and achievable and relatable is also really interesting even in like a fantasy setting and that level of escapism of knowing that being comfortable in like like i if i'm sitting down to read a harlequin romance Mm -hmm. there's a structure to it Mm -hmm. i know it i'm comfortable within it that predictability is not a problem for me i completely agree yeah, it's why I reach for the same books over and over again. It's why I love – it's why there's a whole subgenre of Regency romance. It's the same mm-hmm. like four stories over and over again, but I've got a stack of them. And that's – going back to like fairy tales and the way that they're classified, there's a whole classification system for fairy tales. There is, yeah. And that's you know come under criticism because it doesn't necessarily allow for anything east of like Germany. Yeah. Um, or south of Italy. Mm-hmm. But uh <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much the range. Uh although there like there is work being done to make it a little bit more actually like universal and inclusive. Once you start categorizing types of stories, there is a formula. And especially the ones written by women, it's like, okay, cool, here's the list of anxieties that young women have in this time. That oh oh, they still oh I still have it. It's a little <laughs> bit different. If it's evolved and changed and, and grown with the times, but it's still it's still there. Mm-hmm. And these stories are still capturing the imagination of women and it is and they're still tools with which we engage with and criticize and rebel against the patriarchy now. Mm-hmm. We are using the same tools that French noble women did. And we're just doing it in a very – we're doing it in a different way. And I think sometimes those French noble women were doing it better than us. I We were talking about this earlier. The French people are still kind of doing it better than us. <laughs> we could take a – maybe take a hint, learn a lesson or two. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the same. It's the same. It's crazy to think we're still having the same conversations 
now that people were having hundreds of years ago, and, and frankly doing it in a similar way, which in, in some ways feels very connected, and in another way that's a very sad connection to have. It It's sad. I agree. There's a, like, sadness of it, do things really change, but, like, they do. Because think about the ram, and think about A Court of Thorns and Roses. It's true. Like, Dolnoy was pushing back against something that Sarah J. Moss doesn't have to anymore in the same way. That's very true. It's it's a very different world. And both of those women were heavily censored. Oh, yeah. Court of Thorns and Roses has been banned often. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's also been criticized for just, like, not being very good writing, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, like, I listen, I read all of them. I'm not I there will- for the prose. It's I'm fine. not there for the pros. That's my thing. <laughs> uh, there are certain stories that I read, certain books that I read, and I've talked about those on the podcast where I'm like, objectively, these are beautiful stories or beautiful books. I think everyone should read them. And then there's Ice Planet Barbarians, okay? You have to have a spectrum. I'm here for a good time and not a long time, and that's yes. okay too. <laughs> yes. It's the it's the same thing that we talk about. We talk about um, like Black Panther and everything ever all at once and, and um, like Shang-Chi and all of these like movies mm-hmm. that are led by – uh people of color or like queer films where like art centered around marginalized voices and created by marginalized voices has we have to be allowed to be uh bad or weak or like fluffy and unimportant mm-hmm. like we have to be allowed to do that as much as cis white hetero male centered art and media that has to be allowed otherwise I don't want equality unless I'm allowed to make a $2 million bad thing as much as Zack Snyder is. Oh, my God. Yes. That's that's the equality that I strive for, right? So we get to have that, and, and we that also has value. If it's, like, a badly written feminist escapist fantasy, that's good, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it's... I mean, you're right with the idea of if it's something that's marginalized, it's got to be – we've talked about it. It has to be twice as good to be seen as okay, to be worthy because it's always othered. Right. And I'm a monolith of whatever I create. It has to be the best art ever. It has to have no problems. Mm-hmm. It's wild. And I think that art created by women, it's a little bit easier to make bad stuff just like as a woman as opposed to like a woman of color. You know, like the it, right. there's like all sorts of intersectional justice that – um gets incorporated into so like there is measurable progress and we see that in the way that we handle like what our escapism looks like because for them the escapism was i you know i marry an ugly man who is nice to me Mm -hmm. and my sisters are statues outside of my palace yeah yeah and he just throws money at me Oh my god! Like that yeah. used to be the escapism, which, like, hey, I I'm sure that 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 exact flavor also exists as for mod- some modern uh, women and femme people. But I would consider that to be a lot less of the majority than when *Beauty and the Beast* was first written. It's a it's just a different. We want different things now. Yeah, it's still growing, and you know, there's some backsliding. Oh god. Happening. There is. But it's it's interesting to me that we are in a place where we want such different things than the women who wrote these stories, and yet the stories still hold just as much power today as yeah. they ever have. 
and continue to capture that imagination and and you know like i would consider myself to to be living still in as an american educated woman like i've got some privileged powerlessness mhm you know i relate to these french noble women in uh a way that like i wasn't really aware of until i started delving into it more right right i mean it's it's always crazy to see how research can research can be so eye-opening on this show we've talked about that and and sometimes you dive into things you just didn't expect to see or or you make connections you hadn't made before it's wild and i love this like i've loved this story for so long yeah like being able to go back and trace its lineage like reinforce like justifies for me that like love for is like yeah no i i am participating in a really important and honorable history Mm -hmm. when i interact with this specific story yeah i think that that's very cool i love it I, i think it's yeah it's really special and it's something that i had no idea i genuinely i just haven't done a ton of research on beauty and the beast so figured it was like oh it was probably written by perot or you know the classic fairy tale guys yeah i for the longest time i thought that perot wrote beauty and the beast yeah and he uh i think there's like a version that's attributed like a translation or like an adaptation that's attributed to him but like even in all of my research it barely came up nice i like that you don't get that very often you don't the first man that really gets attributed to it is is Andrew Lang or yeah Andrew Lang. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out it was Leonora Lang actually, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> as it, I mean, as classic. it so often is, absolutely classic. Uh, but that's kind of the very like long wandering, tangent filled history of Beauty and the Beast and like the mothers of fairy tales as a genre. Oh, it's amazing. I made a list because also I needed to send you this book. I made a list of couple of a couple of my favorite uh, Beauty and the Beast retellers. Ooh, yes. Ooh. Uh, it's not that many, but um, I because I found them very like fun and cathartic. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and I think I've sent you one of these books. I really love Fierce Fairy Tales, which is a poetry collection by Nikita Gill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that I forgot about, and it's sitting on my shelf. Uh, it's called Ice by Sarah Beth Durst, and Ooh. it's a it's technically a retelling of the Scandinavian version of Beauty and the Beast, which is uh, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't know if you know that one. It's Beauty and the Beast, but he's like just like a straight up polar bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Rowan touched on it when she covered Sedna very briefly. Oh, um, that would make sense. But I I have heard of East of the Sun, West of the Moon. That one is. And maybe it's just because it's the skin it's a Scandinavian base, so they don't have the same relationship as like the Europe like more Central Europeans did to like chastity, but it's really sexualized. Really? Because that's the and I think it was probably addressing like the the concerns of the women of the day, which was the like I'm a young girl and this big hulking bear of a strange man wants mm-hmm. me to do what now? I'm required to do what? And so you can see in, like, the different, like, retellings of Beauty yeah. and the Beast, like, where, like, what thing was most important to, like, soothe at the time. Mm-hmm. And when it's animals, bridegroom, sex is always one of the first things that comes up. Because there's also, when women are writing it, 
there's an interesting there can be like an in, like an interesting element of the awakening of a woman's sexuality right right you you see that a lot of times nowadays and it's and, and that's Im- so important and it was it's done very differently now than it was then but the the again that back and forth of what happens when a woman who hasn't really had permission to engage with the like baser instincts and is faced with someone who she's been told her whole life is like made of those baser instincts like what's the choice mm-hmm. then when you are away from your family and you know what you're supposed to do what you've been told to do and then you you get to think about well, what do i want right to do what do i actually what stories are giving me permission to do what i want to do mm-hmm. and there are a lot of animal as bridegroom stories that more on the like cupid psyche mm-hmm. uh side of things i mean there's an entire monster romance subgenre that is growing oh, yeah. rapidly in popularity and you see where it comes like everyone's like yeah i know where that comes from i, yeah. I don't need i don't i don't need to be like psychobabbled about that it's clear it's really clear <laughs> like like women aren't stupid but also it's nice t- and i think that tiktok has been really helpful and like social media in general something that it has been helpful about is it maybe to an extent that is 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 more than it should be of the the lack of shame mm-hmm. <laughs> of the like i'm gonna talk openly about topics that maybe could have been taboo yeah because I'm going to, like, quote-unquote, normalize something, right? Hey, some things shouldn't be normalized. That's, it's okay <laughs> if they're not. Like, it's okay for something to be, like, niche uh, or, uh, like, a subculture. Like, that's also mm-hmm. allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, I don't think everything needs to be normalized. Um, but so many people are, like l- – on the other, you know, on the other side of that, like so many people are learning. Oh, is that what asexuality is? Oh, is that what queerness is? Right. Oh, is that what uh, gender like fluidity is? When uh, is that what ADHD is? Oh, yes. Is that what neurodivergent so we, means? Is that yeah. you know? Is it, what does it mean to live in that space and interact with those people? And oh, I like those people. They seem really interesting. Like this could be a community. This, yeah, it, it definitely. Yeah. I'm had. not alone. I mm-hmm. I thought I was the only person who felt this way, thought this way, wanted these things. If anything, if TikTok has taught me anything, it's that I've never had an original thought. Okay. Wow. I'm just a bunch of stereotypes yes. stacked up in a trench coat. <laughs> stereotypes and mental illnesses in a trench coat. That's yes. Me. Yep. <laughs> and turns out so many of us are like that. Uh, right. Good for us. Good for us. Normalize being a bunch <laughs> of stereotypes and mental illnesses in a trench coat. <laughs> that one we can normalize. <laughs> That's our salon. That is TikTok our salon. is our salon. It's very referential. You get to decide which, like, rooms you go into and which oh groups that you're communicating with. You're so you right. You build on other people's conversations. You reference other people's thoughts. Tumblr used to be like that, too, and it still kind of is. But TikTok is, a, I think, the most modern yeah. iteration of the traditional French salon. Oh, that is so interesting. It really is. Mm-hmm. Or at least it can be used that way. It, yeah. And there's there's time capsules. There's lore. There's yeah. changing ways of conversation. Oh, wow. There's a whole social structure. Yeah. That's, effe- that's brought into 
once it like you know exists in the meat space right and then usually femme or marginalized people who are using tiktok like there are mm-hmm. there are hand signals and phrases and like little keywords that you can say that you can have a conversation around somebody who isn't speaking that same language absolutely and like have that same subtlety that women who spoke in the same salon and were training in the art of conversation would have been able to do during the court of the sun king so they didn't get beheaded right oh that's so true because you know you can ask someone like oh do they like a lavender oat milk latte and like you know what you know what they're asking have you started having to incorporate like accidentally or a struggle to not incorporate things like unalive in your speaking life yes that's that's talking around something so you don't get banned on tiktok TikTok. Mm -hmm. so you're suddenly like now there's a whole extra language that has developed to avoid societal restrictions Mm -hmm. that the people who participate in those communities understand in shorthand and the ones who don't don't Mm -hmm. oh man if i get nothing else out of this episode today i'm gonna be thinking about this for the next month of my life that's such an interesting comparison i yeah i love thinking about the ways that people communicate and i especially love thinking about the ways that people that women communicate because of how often it's like ridiculed by society Mm -hmm. absolutely anything that a teen girl likes is immediately the lowest rung of importance or relevance or respect in society yeah which was uh, which is what happened with fairy tales. Yeah. Which is also why there's this whole thing around the Barbie movie coming out. Yeah. I cannot wait for the Barbie movie to come out. I'm so excited. I've somehow managed to, uh, like, I haven't seen any, like, trailers or anything except for the first one. I'm going in, like, pretty, like, clean slate. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I'm in the same boat. I even, because I, I at this point don't own anything pink. Uh, I just. Kaylee and I, you and I are the same. We all oh, it's jewel tones and black and neutrals. Yeah, I don't have anything pink either. I bought um actually I bought a T-shirt that has barbarian in the Barbie font. <gasps> oh it my god! It was supposed to be written in pink, and then I bought the shirt and it came and it was more red than pink. So I'm mm. like, I still don't have anything pink. But <laughs> close it up. <laughs> my sister put aside an outfit for me for when we go see the Barbie movie because all of us we've already agreed ahead of time we are all dressing up. We're going full out for the Barbie movie. Yeah, and that is such I a think, woman thing. That is such a like a yeah. femme. I think it's probably like a femme and queer culture thing that I've just mm-hmm. seen online that people are just the Barbie movie is everything. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. That's I think I'm really curious, but I think that's going to feel like the next stage in feminine like escapist fantasies that are mostly social critique. Mm-hmm. I think that's. It's Greta Gerwig, right? So like, yeah. okay, yeah. This one's gonna have this one's gonna have hands. I can't wait. <laughs> this is gonna I'm have teeth. So excited. Yeah, very <laughs> excited too. Uh, oh my god, I wrote a story. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, so I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> the genuine joy. I'm just like, oh, ooh, what a treat. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> please, Kaylee, would you would you please share your story? Oh. Um. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so funny. I was like, I was talking about TikTok and the Barbie movie. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, There's There's the other thing that, that happens at Willie like a Fable. I forgot. <laughs> so um, 
I realized that I didn't I, I didn't know what to do with Beauty and the Beast because I've done so much Beauty and the Beast retelling through damsels. I was mm-hmm. like, uh-oh. <laughs> I run out of stuff. Um, so I read Fierce Fairy Tales again, and so this is very much in the style of Nikita Gill and her um, – Okay. Uh, she wrote a poem that was uh, from the perspective of the evil stepmother in Cinderella. Ooh. And uh, I was very inspired, and and uh, I it'd been so long since I read the original tale, I forgot about Beauty's older sisters in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought it made just it just made an impact on me, so I thought I would give them a voice. Oh, I'm excited. Bird shit burns like acid. Did you know that? Well, it does. When your skin is stone and mortar. The grating little feet set half-remembered teeth on edge like a phantom limb. And their shit burns, because your skin isn't skin anymore. It wouldn't do much to regular flesh, but stone? It eats away bit by bit. And all you can do is beg your buzzing mind to remember that no flesh means no nerves, no pain, no muscles to lock, no fists to bunch, no throat to go raw from screaming and screaming and screaming. But it can't remember that. It's locked in the old memory of tender tissue and bone, firing along pathways that aren't there. They aren't there. But I feel them. And he told me I had a terrible imagination. Somehow the joke is still on me. And so is the bird shit. She does her best to scrape it away, once a week like clockwork, in her posh little work gloves with her shiny little tools. Never a trace of resentment or even satisfaction on her face. Just the same gentle, loving expression. Sickening. If she knew it hurt, I'm sure her little heart would break and she'd set up some kind of something to keep them off of us. I'm assuming my sister is in the same predicament. I'll never know. And little beauty will never know how much we suffer. So much more than the fairy said we would. Until we own our faults, she said. But how can I claim ownership of these worthless burdens thrust upon me? This is not of my making, and I cannot claim otherwise. I was born wealthy and witty and beautiful. I always found false humility irritating, and true humility a worthless and nauseating exercise. What would be the point? I'm a woman with limited privileges. Pretty enough to snare a husband. Intelligent enough to know I need to secure a good one before that beauty fades. Of course I aspire to a title the kind of security that my father's clearly unstable business could never provide. My brothers were all allowed ambitions. Not me. The only betterment I could seek was moral, increase my important virtues. You know, the dutiful, obedient, quiet, saccharine, spineless things my little sister made her entire personality. Breaking her back and losing sleep over our father, looking to the past instead of the future. Her future. No thought of what she would do when he dies, destitute, leaving us to throw ourselves on the mercy of our brothers if we can't find a suitable husband before then. Almost impossible, without a good dowry. And he robbed us of that anyway, without even having the decency to die, that first moment of breath-stealing, desperate hope, the news of one last ship. The lists and plans of getting back to a presentable, polished state to find that security, that man, maybe even lower the expectations a little bit. A count. An elderly, barren, even. I'll trade up for my second husband. I get first choice of the suitors as the eldest only by four minutes, but I'll use what I've got. I'll always 
use what I've got. And then the hopes dashed. He comes back with flowers. Useless, dying, battered roses, just what the perfect daughter ordered. Classic, predictable, worthless, short-lived, inconvenient. And another predictable development, that self-sacrificial martyr streak that we never could bully out of her. And we tried. Toughen her up with sharp words, even blows. A taste of cruelty she'd experience out in the world, the kind she eventually wouldn't be able to escape. For her own good. At least it started that way. And then it became a game. A challenge. Something had to crack that sweet little smile, prompt some kind of retaliation. And it never did. We would get worse and worse. Nothing. Every unkindness returned with more syrupy, sweet nonsense. On her march to the noose, she remembered to make sure we had everything we needed to be properly married, just as we'd wanted. Dowries and all. And to see her return against all odds somehow stumbled into everything I'd work for my whole life. Wealth, security, and love. The one thing I'd spent every waking moment convincing myself I didn't need. The one thing I couldn't dare to dream of. Just passively doing what she was told, and she finds a beast of a man who lavishes her with riches and kind words. Our own hard-won marriage is an endless nightmare of all the cruelties we'd been preparing little beauty for. When we'd kill for a little bit of neglect. I just wanted to prove that her beast was a man after all. Justify some of it. Any of it. I wish she would forget to come for us just once. Get a little too wrapped up in her perfect life, perfect husband, perfect family, perfect kingdom, and forget about me. Give me the satisfaction of a flaw to hang on to. A little shadow of selfishness, pettiness, anything. I could stand the punishment then. Witness her happiness like the fairy sentenced us for as long as it takes if she would just fail. Doesn't even have to be a lot, just a little failure from perfect little beauty. Until then, all I can do is what I've always done. Stand where I have been placed, seething and striving against the confines I was born into as I watch all the undeserving wretches around me take what should have been mine. Ugh. Kaylee, that was so good. I am so glad you chose to talk about this because I, I completely forgot to touch on it. I wanted to come back to it. What mm. an awful punishment they got put I under. I know! It, it is Whoa! an actual nightmare. They're statues they can't move, but they're fully aware. Yeah. Awful. And, and I love that she's she's not even really a villain in this at all. She's just like, I, listen, I'm pragmatic. I Here's the world I'm in. Here's what I had to do. And yeah, I got pissed off when someone else got it. And now this is what happened to me. And I think there's something that is, it feels so poignant that the punishment for these women is to be completely trapped and aware of how trapped and confined you are and unable to do anything about it, but watch other people be able to, like, move freely. Mm-hmm. That, like, look, again, it's not actually – it's not subtle. This isn't subtlety. Right. It's just – it's just not the same kind of, like, allegorical sideways talk that someone who would be, you know, raised and socialized as a man mm-hmm. would think of to – 
communicate. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's so, and I love again. I just love this character that you've written. Like I would read a whole story with this person as the protagonist because the frustration of seeing beauty being still so perfect and being like, I just like, please just mess up. Please just be a person. It's so good. I can't like, cause I was really thinking about it of the, like the uh, amount of time that uh, de Beaumont was like, and no matter what her sisters did, she just like of true genuine kindness. Like this is who she was. Like, she only asked for a rose because she didn't want to embarrass her sisters by not asking for something and making them look like they were being petty and selfish. So she she just like thought of something, and it's still like, why? Did you, <laughs> 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 yeah. Or the like, you're you're. We were just being terrible to you about the fact that you're not putting on this like sorrowful display to find out that our father's gonna die. And she's like, no, I'm gonna. It's your fault. And she's like, no, I'm going to – he's not going to die. I'm just going to go. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> of course you are. Yeah, great. Yeah, of course. Great. You know, and then coming back and being like, oh, you're not – you didn't get eaten. You're happy. And we have the handsome and the witty husbands who mm-hmm. are terrible, who are actual beasts. And you somehow, Once- by not trying to, like, you know – the stories say, oh, these these sisters, like, they gave themselves airs, mm-hmm. right? They aspired to more. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. And she just, like, was so – from that perspective, right? Like, you you can imagine watching someone be like, I'm just going to be really sweet and hope that being soft and sweet and kind and innocent and a little passive, like, if I'm a good person, good things will happen to me. Everything will just work out. And there is a part of that attitude of, like, everything's just going to work out. That I can just identify with the frustration oh, of yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Of like, yeah, for you it will, sure. Yeah, that's for irritating. You. Great. Yeah, I'm sure everything just works yeah. out for you because you have all these benefits that you're not aware of. And you just think that you're just, you know, just a happy, lucky person. But yeah, everyone loves you because you're so, you're such a good person. Yeah, if you weren't pretty, it wouldn't be, it would be different. Yeah, yeah. Or if you didn't have money or if you weren't white, like there's all these things. That just inherently make it easier. And then, yeah, then things just work out because there's there are fewer things working against you. Yeah. And there's that, like, the passivity that is so celebrated in the fairy tales written by men that I love to, like, just poke at. Because mm-hmm. even, like, in Beauty and the Beast, like, there are elements of that, like, passivity and virtue and she's just so kind and no flaws right. and – there's, like, uh, more levels to it in the de Beaumont story, the, like, full text of it. So, like, she's, like, I want to give her, like, a little bit more credit because mm-hmm. I simplified a little bit. But kind of turning that perspective a little bit and seeing what else is in there and, like, finding some, like, finding some mess and finding some, like, darkness, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Some flaws. And, like, because, yeah, she's not a – they're not villains, but I know, like, I've met women like that, right, who are, like – this is for your own good. And I'm like, oh, I'm bullying you because someone else is going to be mean to you. Like, I'm just making this hard for you because you might as well learn sometime. Yeah. I did it. So now you have to suffer too. Like, I suffer. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, you know, it's not a villain, not a good person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I like the ambiguity of it. That's, that is where things get interesting. And we're so much more comfortable now, much more than even we, 
we were like we started with that like complex moral ambiguity heroines and stories and like messy endings and nothing is like tied up and, and clean and satisfying and then we went through a period of where that was not what the men thought people wanted and, and also mm-hmm. like a lot of women were were like they're looking for something else and now we're back there i think calling back to those origins of okay like let's talk about what personal growth really is like mm-hmm. let's talk about complexity let's talk about moral ambiguity and uh, what does catharsis look like when we get when we also get a satisfying ending like can catharsis and optimism exist in the same stories at the same time what does that look like and that's i think where we are now in that like escapist fantasy yeah i think that's a great way to put it because we still want the escape but you still want to feel the feelings in a safe place and for me at least i I like the trend of you want to feel all those feelings and then you still get the happy ending right like you feel like you've earned it and that's also like a really millennial um a mindset that a lot of especially a lot of fem millennials have of the need to earn any kind of positive emotion mm-hmm. yeah yes that i've noticed is a recurring theme in the kind of uh fiction that i'm drawn to mm-hmm. of the like i get the happy ending and i have the security of the happy ending i know it's going to be there and i have the security of the format but then i earn it a little bit you know yes yeah what was the journey like how did i how did I, I like to think about when I'm reading stories, like how how would I react in the situation? Obviously, that's how people enjoy stories. But there is something very uh, alluring about the loss of when I say loss of agency, but for the for the sake of something that you know going in is going to be safe and good. Yeah, and so then you get to experience the journey. The stakes are lower. The consequences are 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 less severe, right? You have a safety net where you can rehearse that catharsis, right? It doesn't it doesn't have to be something that you actually experience, or like if which like a lot of women were were doing when they were writing these these fairy tales of like let me rail against injustice mm-hmm. and have that catharsis through this fairy tale, which means I am a lot less likely to get beheaded or mm-hmm. exiled or shut up in a nunnery and and i can still do this and have and have this because i can't do it in public right it's not safe in public but this has got to go somewhere yeah <laughs> a feeling i can't imagine having today just <sighs> unimaginable just put my angst in this the harlequin romance came by yeah <laughs> Man, good job, Kaylee. This was so interesting. I love this and I love the the thesis of it. I think it's such a good message. Thanks. Yeah, it's – I'm glad it felt like it was kind of talking to a singular point because I was like, <laughs> talk about Beauty the Beast. And then, oh, wait, there was this one lady and then there was this other lady. Mm-hmm. And then uh, let's talk about Disney. Wait, what, what were you talking – what did I say? <laughs> Human and Psyche. I don't know. I love it. And I love all of it. And that is willing and faithful. <laughs> it is. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's okay. Fairy tales. Fairy tales. Go. <laughs> okay, but I have to ask you for one more thing, which is to tell me something good. Yeah. Uh, I think – and I said this earlier, so I don't know if it counts. But it can count. the um, 
I got to make that uh, chamomile infused uh, honey. Yes, yum. With like fresh, fresh chamomile flowers from the farmer's market. Incredible. And then I'm just mixing it with like lemonade and and I'm mixing it with everything. Oh, and I it would is too. So good, and it makes me feel so fancy. I have more fresh chamomile flowers, oh. so to feel fancy, I just like put the drink together and then I float little fresh flowers on top oh my like God. a cottage core dream. That's so precious. The oh. other thing you could do is stick a bunch of them in sugar and then it'll infuse with the sugar and oh, then you I could, could do chamomile sugar. Chamomile sugar in your chamomile drinks. Oh, that's amazing. That's so fun. I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I just get to make a lot of um a lot of little farmers market potions that are also delicious and that's my something good it's gonna be such a good summer for i that. love it amazing that's that is a delightful something good tracy tell me something <laughs> good <laughs> my something good is um i recently found this new cafe by me and by i recently found i mean my friend and my sister found and then <laughs> dragged me over too but I, I went to it for the first time and it's this super cute cafe it's a cafe and florist so they have <gasps> fresh flowers that you can buy you can make custom arrangements they have dried flowers they have pressed flowers they have this room in the back that you can sit in with couches, but then they'll also teach classes about floral oh, arranging. Amazing. And then it's just this amazing cafe with food and drinks, and it's so cute, and it's in this little walkable little town. Like, it's just – it has been delightful. I, uh, my sister and I this morning took the dogs to the dog park, let them run around, get their energy out, and then we drove over to the town, walked over because you can bring dogs in. Oh, my God. A perfect place. It was amazing. Uh, I sat with the dogs outside because they were just a little overwhelmed uh, by the people inside. So I sat with them both outside, and they did very good, but it was just so fun. It's just so cute to have this little cafe. Oh, a dream. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my something good. And that is Beauty and the Beast. Kaylee, you crushed it. Hey, thanks. <laughs> and uh, thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. journey was the friends we made along the way this is the numbers that i could count to i guess that's it though if you got f further i might have been stuck